This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and in this episode we're going to be talking about mathematics teaching. Of course, mathematics teaching is important, the instructional practices that teachers actually use in the classroom. But it's been a long-standing challenge to figure out how do instructional practices relate to certain characteristics of the teacher. Is it teacher knowledge that's really predictive of the instructional practices? If it is knowledge, then the mathematics education field has to make sure that teachers know a lot of things. They need math knowledge, or they need pedagogical knowledge, or maybe they need some sort of special knowledge for teaching. But maybe teacher knowledge isn't the main thing for instructional practice. Maybe it's particular skills or dispositions that are more related to instructional practice. Or maybe it's the vision that the teacher has for their math instruction. Maybe that really matters. I'm going to be talking about this topic with a colleague of mine from right here at the University of Missouri, Chuck Munter. Chuck, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. We're going to be digging into Chuck's article that was recently published in the American Journal of Education, and he wrote it with Richard Carenti, and it's entitled, Examining Relations Between Mathematics Teachers' Instructional Vision and Knowledge and Change in Practice. So, Chuck, I had you on the podcast before where you were talking about a JRME article from a couple years ago, and that also related to instructional vision. I was wondering if you could help us connect that previous study and then how it has led to this now uh, follow-up study. Sure. Back then... I was writing a paper about an idea that originated in a bigger project I worked on as a graduate student, the Middle School Mathematics and Institutional Setting of Teaching Project, or MIST as we call it, in which we thought that if we're studying what it takes to improve instruction at scale, we might consider the extent to which individuals involved in teaching and in leadership positions share a vision for what they're after. So we would interview teachers and principals and others and ask them about their ideas about high-quality mathematics instruction. And that paper was about developing some way of assessing the sophistication with which they described practice. So that produced a a way of assessing um, what we hear people say about practice with the idea that it's probably a good thing if we hear changes over time in the sophistication with which they describe the things we care about. And we could use it to assess the extent to which maybe a group of people in a school talk in similar ways. But what we didn't do back then, what I didn't work on yet, was looking at the extent to which how people did talk about practice related to what they did in the classroom. And so with this paper, we've taken a look now at the connection between the two. Does someone's instructional vision tell us much about what their instructional practice in the classroom looks like? Mm-hmm. In looking at this, you actually had a large data set with many teachers, and you actually were looking at the teacher's instructional practice over multiple years. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that data was that you had available to you, and what was the value in looking at such a large set of teachers and following them over time? Sure. As I said, the MISS project was about thinking about what it takes to improve instruction at scale, and so it was important to get a pretty large sample of teachers Um, across all four districts in which we were working. Then, over the course of several years, we've amassed a pretty rich data set that allows us to do a a lot of different analyses. And so we thought that let's leverage it for what it has available in terms of thinking about scale and, over time, how, how things might progress. So I think that 
there's a lot to be learned by doing case studies and close-up analyses of small groups of teachers where you can get really rich, deep data. But I think there's also something to be gained by looking at scale or looking at a large number of teachers and, uh, coupling with that, looking across time. I think too often, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, we look at a, a single year and we can examine important relations between different variables and, and aspects of a, of a setting in which we're working, but sometimes we don't hang out long enough to see how things actually come to fruition or don't. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to be sure to capture a little bit about that, especially if the idea of an instructional vision is something you're aiming at for future practice. Mm. It's not going to so, happen the next day. <laughs> that's right. So if you just jump in and get someone's ideas about future practice and you never actually hang out long enough to see what that future practice looks like, then yeah. who knows if instructional vision is even a real thing. Right. So you've got hundreds of teachers, right? And it was over four years, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yes. Yeah. And as you said before, you're really looking at this vision and how it relates to the instructional practice over time. But then you also bring in another important variable, which is the mathematical knowledge for teaching or the knowledge that that teacher has. So now you've got three main variables that you're sort of, you know, looking at how they relate to one another, the instructional vision, the knowledge or mathematical knowledge for teaching, and then the actual practice that they do in the classroom. How did you operationalize those three variables, you know, so that you could kind of quantify them or, you know, make sense of them for the study? Yes, our analyses included a number of other control variables that are pretty common in so-called teacher quality studies. But as you noted, those three were our primary variables of interest. Our main outcome was a measure of instructional practice, and we used Melissa Boston's Instructional Quality Assessment, and the IQA. And it's a series of rubrics that emphasize the mathematical tasks that teachers are using in terms of the cognitive demand in their initial printed version, but then also how they are implemented with kids and whether that cognitive demand is maintained or not, and the discourse around that mathematical task, and especially during the concluding whole class conversation after kids have had a time to work through a task and invent some ideas and representations, to what extent is the teacher pressing them for articulating their reasoning and helping them draw connections across their ideas. So if, if you're doing those things as a teacher, then you're likely to score higher on the rubrics that comprise the IQA. For mathematical knowledge, we used Heather Hill and Deborah Ball and others work out of University of Michigan on the MKT assessments for middle school teachers. And then, of course, Instructional Vision was the previous paper that you mentioned of mine, um, a series of rubrics for assessing teachers and others' visions of high-quality math instruction that are about role of the teacher, a series of things about classroom discourse and nature of tasks as well. Mm -hmm. And if people are really curious about this idea of the instructional vision, I encourage you to not only get Chuck's JRME paper in Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, but you can also listen to episode 1422 of this podcast where I had a conversation with Chuck about that idea of vision. So as you can tell, my guest is Chuck Munter from the University of Missouri, and I want to ask you now about what you found when you looked at the relationship between these variables so first of all, let's take like a static slice of time, as a lot of you know other studies do, where it is just looking at one slice of time. Mm-hmm. But what did you see as the sort of uh, overarching relationships between vision knowledge and then the instructional practice, if you just kind of collapsed it down into you know one blob of time? 
Hmm. That's actually impossible to answer, I think, <laughs> um, because we did look at slices, but we looked at each of the four slices, and as it turns out, it kind of changed. Um, if we just look at the first year, we have four years of data, and if we look at the first year, we found that teachers' mathematical knowledge for teaching was positively correlated with their instructional practice. Mm-hmm. We found a statistically significant relation between those two, and uh, in fact, a negative relation with instructional vision to practice. Mm. But if you zoom ahead to the fourth year and just look at, at just the last year of our data, the relation between MKT and IQA is now gone, hmm. but now instructional vision is a positive relation. So I, I think that any of those is interesting. And if we had just a single slice where we collapsed all these into one year, then I don't think we you might would not see much of anything. Right. But it's interesting, though, if you, if this had been uh, just a single point-in-time study, say it had been at the beginning, it's like, okay, we've got these teachers, let's look at their mathematical knowledge for teaching and their instructional practice. It would have seemed like, oh, nice, clear relationship there. Vision doesn't seem to play much of a role. Yeah. And if you had stopped there, that would have just been your conclusion and you would have moved on. Yeah, I would say it turns out talking in fairly sophisticated ways about math teaching is bad for one's practice. Wow. And, and uh, having the knowledge that's captured in the MKT kind of thing is, oh, that seems important. Right. Yeah. So that's why we were interested not just in these slices, but um, looking at growth models. And so my colleague Rip Currenty was a big help in this. Um, this is a real area of his expertise. And so we were able to look at relation between instructional vision and MKT and not just any single year of IQA scores, instructional quality, but looking at relations to growth changes over time. Mm -hmm. So we found that initial instructional vision was indeed predictive of future change in instruction Mm. in a positive way, Mm -hmm. and that initial mathematical analysis for teaching was not. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the significant relation that I mentioned earlier in year one, it, that fades from year to year. Hmm. So initially, teachers' mathematical knowledge for teaching was related to the quality of their instruction. And in year two, it still was, but not quite as strongly. Hmm. And by year three, that was gone. Hmm. And I think that that actually fits with what Heather Hill and others have written about MKT in terms of the other resources that are introduced to teachers, as I quote in the paper, that those things can, to some degree, scaffold low MKT teachers successfully into new practices, as they say. Okay, so it's the reason that the relationship on MKT to instructional practice might fade is maybe because the ones who were lower in their instructional practice scores are maybe catching up because of some other supports or some other scaffolds or some other things. It's not necessarily that the ones with high MKT are starting to get worse at teaching. That's right. And I should note that these school districts are atypical in that when we began with all of them, they had committed to forms of professional development and curriculum adoption that we could kind of get behind and say, yeah, these represent ideas and efforts that are aligned pretty well with what classroom research suggests in mathematics education. And so teachers were being introduced to new ideas and frameworks and supports for their practice. So maybe initially MKT was their main their main resource on which to draw for their teaching, and then new things were introduced to the repertoire that they could draw on. And so maybe, indeed, there were these low MKT teachers initially whose practice improved despite not having that form of knowledge. Mm-hmm. 
there's been quite a bit over the last decade mm-hmm. on mathematical knowledge for teaching. And I think that it's not always clear when is that related to instructional practice and, and mm. when it's not. And I think that one thing that this paper offers is that we did find a relation between mathematical knowledge for teaching and not as the same folks who have authored the MKT work have developed their mathematical quality of instruction rubrics um, and found a relation between those two. But this is a different assessment of instruction. This is kind of privileges a particular kind of pedagogy. And so this is some evidence that math knowledge for teaching can apparently may be related to instruction that is more inquiry-based or dialogic in form. But then that was only at the outset, and it's not predictive of continued change in mm-hmm. that vein. Mm-hmm. So I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah. And then to go a little bit more in on the vision side of it, um, so you have a figure five in the paper, and I encourage people to grab the paper from the American Journal of Education and look at this because it's a nice figure. But that one really focuses more in on the vision and how it relates to instructional practices over time. And there's an interesting kind of cross that happens. There's uh, teachers that started with a low rating on the IQA, like low, what you'd call low uh, instructional practices according to that measure. And there are other teachers who started high, but over time they cross, and then it seems like the vision is maybe a really important thing that's uh, related to the cross. Could you say a little bit more about that figure and about that cross that seems to be happening? Sure. So given that we found that initial instructional vision was predictive of future change in instructional practice, we became interested in what these trajectories might look like, and we thought that it's very possible that it could differ by teacher depending on where they start. Yeah. So we created these different groups of teachers like thinking about instructional vision and practice as being low or high on either of those. And so as you said, there is a group of teachers who started initially with IQA scores that were on the lower end, but whose uh, instructional vision scores were pretty high. So they, they can articulate a sophisticated sense of what they want a classroom to look like but they aren't doing it yet. That's right. And by the end of the fourth year, their instructional practice had caught up, you could say, to how they were talking about practice at the outset. Whereas there's another group who happened to start pretty high on the IQA, but whose instructional vision was considerably lower. And those two are the the ones that cross, as you said, Mm -hmm. over time and Mm -hmm. end up lower in an IQA score. Hmm. And uh, we are sure that to some extent we are observing regression, a regression to the mean phenomenon. But I also think that there are some teachers who very possibly initially were buoyed by new curriculum adoption or initial professional development they were trying out and giving, trying to give a shot. We captured them in that first year, saw them putting these things into practice, and over time that faded. And so um, if they didn't have this instructional vision or, you know, I'd like to also mention uh, some research we drew on here. Jessica Thompson and colleagues at the University of Washington who are in science ed talk about critical pedagogical discourse, and I found that really helpful to think about instructional vision or a discourse for one's practice as a, a kind of filter for filtering in or filtering out new ideas and pedagogical tools. So perhaps you could say teachers with more sophisticated filters were improving their instruction at a greater rate over time. One additional interesting thing about our analysis, and this is to uh, Rip's credit also, was thinking about growth not as fitting just a linear uh, progression, but 
we broke it up into a piecewise analysis so that we allowed for different changes over intervals of the of the study. So mm. um, you can again look at back at figure five and see these kind of bends in time and thinking about is it possible that if we implement new professional development or efforts to support change in teachers' practice that it will take some time before it really takes off. So initially, maybe the, the growth might be slower, and then by the second or third year, we start to mm. see those efforts uh, become fruitful. And just have to, in a policy environment or from administration support, need to have the patience to wait for that to take off, because a lot of times it's maybe looking for a quick fix or something that's going to spike up immediately. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a, a good point about, I think, um, one thing that we're proud of about this analysis and its longitudinal nature is that very thing. Like we invest in these ideas and then we as researchers don't always hang around long enough to see them play out. Mm-hmm. And so the MIST project has allowed us to, to do that and we, we'd like to see more, more of this. It's expensive and time consuming, but we think it's worth it to not just help us understand phenomena of interest, but also to feedback into policymaking and the ways that practitioners think about how long it takes to actually achieve some real change and see the yields of initial investments. So this whole conversation seems to connect to a common problem in teacher education and just work with teachers in general, where maybe teachers are saying really great things and maybe they're towing the NCTM line of, hey, this is how we're supposed to describe tasks and how we're supposed to describe discourse in the classroom and all this stuff. And so we start to feel like, yeah, everybody's talking this talk about, you know, really ambitious mathematics instruction, but there's the problem or the question of, are they actually doing it in their classroom on a day-to-day basis? Are they actually implementing those things with students? Uh, So there's this kind of say-do problem that's always on our mind when we're working with teachers. What insight do you think this study sheds on that problem? Is there kind of a solution that's maybe alluded to, or do you see a little bit of an opening to solving or or feeling better about this problem? Yes, this analysis, I think, really influenced how I think about that. Because I, I feel like so often we feel this disappointment after talking with a teacher, and it sounds great, and we go observe a classroom, and we see, oh, this isn't quite what I was expecting based on what you described. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm, I'm much less likely to be disappointed now, because I, I see these as, we frame it using Pam Grossman's ideas about appropriation of pedagogical tools. I now see this as appropriating different forms of tools the instructional vision represents a kind of conceptual tool you're maybe taking up in your discourse for you, for your professional practice. Mm-hmm. And what I see you doing with kids in classrooms represents your appropriation of, of more practical tools. And so I think these things can grow in different ways. They're certainly related, or I'm guessing they are, but I think that to hear someone talk about practice and to see them engage with kids around mathematical stuff in, in practice I think can be two different questions to some extent. And mm-hmm. so uh, I know I now don't see it as a say-do problem. I see that as an interesting interplay between mm-hmm. two different appropriation of two different kinds of tools. Mm-hmm. And then I also want to just pick your brain a little bit about looking back on this study. You know, you've completed the analysis, it's been published, and we're having conversations about it now. But in your own mind, are there some questions that have not been resolved? There's questions that, wow, that's still really unanswered or I really want to know more about it. Or has this study kind of affected you in your own work when you're either doing pre-service teacher education or doing teacher education? So are there some questions still on your mind or are there some effects that this has had on your personal professional life? 
yes to all of those things. First of all, back to this idea of interplay between appropriating different pedagogical tools, I'm interested in what accounts for that. If, uh, if we have developed a critical pedagogical discourse, as Thompson et al. describe it, or an instructional vision that's filtering in or out new practical tools, or vice versa, what, what's the mechanism between these two things? Um, we look at vision being out ahead. It's very possible that practice is out ahead for some teachers, and so mm. I don't uh, assume that everyone develops a more sophisticated instructional vision and then their practice follows behind. Mm. It could be the other direction, perhaps, in a different setting. Like a teacher who is doing some things that are really amazing and really effective with their students, but they actually aren't even sure how they're doing it or how to describe what they're doing. Right. Hmm. And I think maybe then if we partner with them to help uh, articulate some things about the very things they're already doing that could help them develop a more sophisticated instructional vision and way of talking about the practice, which then in turn could feed right back into continued mm-hmm. growth in, the, in their instructional practice. Mm-hmm. We also became frustrated to some extent with the measures that we were using. There's real merits, I think, in the IQA. They help capture a lot of things, and in this case, what they assess was also very well aligned with the instructional visions that these districts were promoting collectively. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's some nuance that I, that I would like to have in smaller changes in instruction. Uh-huh. You know, looking at rubrics that are on a zero to four scale and really hardly anybody scores a zero. So you're really talking about a four-level rubric and kind of modal practices around a two. Mm-hmm. And so from a two to three, even as Melissa Boston says, that's kind of a, a significant change. Mm-hmm. There can be a pretty big leap, I think. So it'd be helpful if we had a way to measure and account for smaller increments of, of change in practice. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you can't take practice overall as one thing. Maybe you just have to say, we're just going to look at this one part of practice and try to get more specific on it. Like, we're going to look at your discourse practices or we're going to look at your task selection or implementation stuff. And if you go to just one component of practice, maybe you can get more precise. But then I know that's a balance because you also don't want to fractionalize teaching into just these separate little things. But True, yeah. No, I think it's worth uh, focusing on particular aspects of our practice at times, but then, yes, we need to also be thinking about, as a whole, the experience that the students have in the classroom. Mm-hmm. What about your own teaching practice or working with teacher education? Uh, has this filtered through to your own day-to-day thinking? It has to some extent. I think that I never made really good on the high-leverage practice ideas and rehearsals. I teach mostly secondary education methods courses, and I think there's maybe a little bit, of, a little bit less available for that level of, of content. But I think I kind of felt bad about that, and I've you know read that we need pedagogies of enactment for pre-service teachers because they don't really have anything to be reflective about just yet. And I buy that. And in this case, we kind of argue like we're working with in-service teachers here, so they got plenty to reflect on. But even with pre-service teachers, this has me thinking more about supporting them and developing these filters. I've read a little bit of research now that suggests that a lot of times our graduates of our programs go out and their practice doesn't look much like what we were promoting in our, yeah. in our courses for the first year or two, but then it reemerges. They you hmm. know, kind of settle in, they get a, a, a handle on 
what life is and uh, and now they can be a little more reflective about what's going on and begin to draw back on what they were introduced to at the university mm-hmm. and so I guess it's a bit of a leap of faith but I'm hopeful that if I can so this study has made me be conscious about supporting my students in developing some critical pedagogical discourse or instructional vision that as they are introduced to new ideas, new frameworks, new practical tools by their university instructors, by their mentor teachers and student teaching, by their coaches or new colleagues when they take a job, that they'll have a discourse for describing the practice they're aiming for that'll help them, again, filter those in or out. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Chuck Muncher about his article in the American Journal of Education, and that article is entitled Examining Relations Between Mathematics Teachers' Instructional Vision and Knowledge and Change in Practice. So thanks so much for talking with me about that work. It's very intriguing work. I encourage everybody to grab the article. And I also want to end with just more of a fun question. So we're very happy to have you here now at the University of Missouri. Uh, You came, you were at the University of Pittsburgh prior to this. So I just wanted to ask you how your adjustment is going to Missouri. You have some connections to Missouri already, but now you're here living. What's been maybe some of the good things about moving and relocating here into the center of the continental United States? Uh, it's been a good move. I, there's plenty about Pittsburgh that I miss, mm-hmm. and the people and that city um, I really enjoyed. Uh, I miss being in a bigger city in general some days, but I've enjoyed moving to the middle of the country, as you said, at a particular time in our country. I, I'm excited by that. I feel like there's something especially relevant about Missouri right now, and mm-hmm. so I'm excited to be in that mix. Mm-hmm. Seems to be some important dynamics between cities and, you know, rural parts of the country or Midwestern, middle parts of the country, coasts of the country. Mm-hmm. And now you and, you know, right right when this is happening in, in the United States, you've literally lived in both places. Well, I, yeah, we shouldn't, I shouldn't refer to Pittsburgh as a coast. Everyone on the actual coast will reject that notion. Yeah, but then if you're here in Missouri, that's East Coast, <laughs> basically. <laughs> It's, I've learned that, yeah. Every, every, everyone on the East Coast told me I lived in the Midwest when I lived in Pittsburgh. And, uh, yeah, I guess that is kind of true, too, I would agree. Because, like, Philadelphia would be, that's where you're really talking East Coast and stuff. And Pittsburgh is, would be a very different city than Philadelphia. There's been something so far about living here in the middle of Missouri and in Columbia that I feel like it's been more accessible in some way to, to visit different kinds of settings. So I've been visiting school districts that are urban and suburban and very rural Mm -hmm. and that's been fun Mm -hmm. well very glad to have you here and thanks so much for talking with us about this study thank you for having me for listening to the math ed podcast if you happen to be a teacher who is interested in a master's degree in math education we have a great master's program here at the university of missouri that is 100 percent online our program actually focuses on math education rather than generalist education or pure mathematics and we personalize the timeline for every individual so you can finish right away in a year and a half or you can stretch it out over three or four years if you wish 
The other good news is that we give everyone in the United States our Missouri in-state tuition rate, so it ends up being a very competitive price. If you want to know more, please visit online.missouri.edu. And we also have an online education specialist degree as well if you want to go beyond a master's degree.